good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are going to conclude an important three-part series as we explore the lives of Tennessee's first ladies, Rachel Jackson, Sarah Polk, and Eliza Johnson. We end with the first, the wife of the seventh president of the United States, Rachel Jackson. A woman of the American frontier, Mrs. Jackson is an enigmatic figure to historians, at times portrayed as a country rube, at others a refined woman and astute business manager. All historians agree that she was one of the most maligned women in American history. Her controversial marriage to Andrew Jackson, a polarizing military and political figure, gave plenty of fodder to Jackson's enemies who saw his wife as a target with which to attack Andrew Jackson. Those attacks would likely contribute to her sudden death just four months before her husband took the oath of office. Andrew Jackson never forgave his political enemies and openly blamed them for his beloved wife's death. Joining me today via telephone is Betty Bowles Ellison. Mrs. Ellison is a former journalist and noted historian and author. Among her many and varied works are the books The Early Laps of Stock Car Racing, A History of the Sport and Business Through 1974, A Legal Odyssey, 200 Years of Kentucky Moonshine, and The True Mary Todd Lincoln, A Biography. Her most recent work, just out last month, is Rachel Donaldson Jackson, The First Lady Who Never Was, published by McFarland and Company. Mrs. Ellison, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a delight to be with you. What got you interested in Rachel Jackson as a subject for a biography? Well, it goes back many years. Uh, I was going through some old files that I had accumulated when I worked for the Department of Public Information in Frankfurt, and there was a very thin file, maybe four or five pages, on Rachel Jackson. And my daughter-in-law picked it up and said, you know, you ought to do a book on Rachel. And, well, you know, when I get around to it was my reply, and... 25 or 30 years later, I actually got around to it. <laughs> she she is an intriguing figure. Were there any expectations that you had about Rachel before writing the book that you were able to dispel or maybe surprised you as you did the research? Well, due to that 1834 fire at the Hermitage, which uh, burned many of her letters, uh, it was a very difficult book to research in that you had to collect information through both around her to get at what I call the real Rachel Jackson, who was quite intelligent, although not well-educated, who had a horrendous early marriage to Louis Robard, quite abusive, and there was a a path of development through her life that is really quite intriguing. Uh, Your your book is well-written and interesting. I think one of the things that really struck me, one of my big takeaways from your book, is really the strength that she had to have throughout her life. First, as a frontiers woman. Second, being in a horrific early marriage while she was still in her teens, having the strength to figure out how to get away from it. And we'll we'll discuss all of these things in in detail uh, through this conversation. And then what she went through later in her life in the realm of politics. she had to be an incredibly strong woman to survive all of those things. Uh, it was a strength, I think, Tom, that evolved as she went through each crisis. And a constant crisis 
in her marriage to Jackson was all the time he spent away from home. She estimated that during their marriage, he was only home about a third of the time. And at first, she found that very difficult to deal with. But, you know, the old saying, she hitched up her garters and did what she had to do. Right. I found it interesting that you started your book with a bit of historiography, exploring how history has treated Rachel and how she's been portrayed over time. Explain why Rachel Jackson is such an enigmatic historical figure. She's hard to get a bead on. Uh, what is his, What has history said about Rachel Jackson? Just about everything you can imagine. Uh, she was initially only portrayed as Jackson's wife. And I think that was one of the reasons that I chose to go that route was to show how history had looked at her and then present her as the real Rachel Donaldson Jackson. A person with her own persona, not not just a wife right. of a president. Right. She was perhaps the greatest victim of woman shaming in American history. Uh, from her weight to her sexuality, she was scorned by many, yet loved and protected by others. Why do you think she has been so harshly judged? Maybe more than any other that I'm aware of, 19th century women. Why was she such a target? Because of her husband. I, it had nothing to do with Rachel. That horrendous 828 presidential rate against uh, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, his Secretary of State, who was angling for a second added term so he could step into the presidency, which never happened. But I think Rachel saw through all of that, and she probably, except for a brief time in early 1828, handled it better than, personally, better than Jackson did, although he did contain himself from making public utterances. Uh... I think it probably weighed more heavily on Jackson than it did on Rachel. He had shown earlier in his life that he was willing to fight. He was willing to lay his life down for the honor of his wife and honor in general. Honor was such a, a big deal for him. I think you mentioned in the book, you quoted a letter that um, made it sound like they were both of the same mind, that honor or death was a maxim that they lived by. Um, so he, he was willing to willing to, willing to to fight for his, his wife's honor. And I, I think you're absolutely right uh, that, you know, through, through that very difficult election of 1828 where she's being attacked, she sort of bears up under it. Uh, They're really hoping that the opponents were hoping that Jackson would not, but he does. He, he manages to, to keep his personal opinions sort of to himself and quiet um, and, and manages to get through the issue. Well, let's talk about her, her life. Rachel was born in 1767 in Virginia's western frontier. She was very much a product of the American frontier. What was Pennsylvania County, Virginia like when she was growing up? Do you have a sense of that? Well, she grew up in uh, what we would now term probably a middle to upper class household. Uh, there was wealth, there was prominence, there was political uh, people within their circle. Uh, it's possible she knew some of the founding fathers since uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington served with her, her father, John Donaldson, in the Virginia legislature. Uh, growing up there, she had uh, rural, pastoral surroundings, and I think she was a very, very happy child her first 12 years. 
Her father was a land speculator. Uh, he owned an iron foundry. And as you said, he, he dabbled in politics uh, at the state level. He, he's a terribly interesting person to my mind. He had gathered some wealth uh, and had done well. Uh, but I think you mentioned in the book, when Rachel was about 11 years old, her father was forced to sell off the foundry and the home. Sort of the fortunes of the frontier, I suppose. Well, he had made some bad business decisions. Uh, in part, I think, because, and he, he was absent quite a bit from the legislature, uh, because he was out surveying land. He was, he was a land speculator. Uh, land was money, and Rachel grew up as right in the middle of the first great American land rush west after the Civil War. She was. But at that point in time, uh, Donaldson fell under the spell of, uh, Richard Henderson who had uh, attempted to and did buy from the Indians all of what is now Kentucky and Tennessee and did it illegally, but the two entities awarded him with, uh, I think it was 200,000 acres each for his efforts, uh, which were actually for personal enrichment, not for any other reason. And uh, he convinced uh, Donaldson and uh, Robertson to... uh, take separate parties. The Robert Party went over land to Nashville, and Donaldson ended up with uh, taking, oh, I think around 240 or 50 people on an 1,100-mile river voyage that was absolutely fraught with danger uh, to go to Nashville by water. And he built a flotilla of uh, flatboats in uh, what is now Kingston, Tennessee. Right. Um, we're going to talk about that, that trip westward in, in a second. Did Rachel have siblings? Pardon? Did Rachel have siblings? Did she have brothers and sisters? Oh, she had 11. There were 11 children and all had 10 siblings. 10 siblings. And she was the youngest daughter, and there was a son younger than she. What about education? Did she have any formal education at all? Not at all, I think. Her father thought education was only for his son. Uh, the smattering of education she got came from her mother, Rachel Stockley Donaldson. She taught her the social graces, how to run a household, how to sew a fine seam. Uh, after that, Rachel was sort of on her own. She learned through life experience, I imagine. You, you mentioned very poignantly that land was money. So uh, her father, as a land speculator and surveyor, uh, we've discussed surveying on, on a few episodes of History's Hook in the past. Sur- surveying was a, a quick way to gather land, and land could then be converted into wealth. Uh, frontier surveyors could earn up to 40% of the land that they surveyed, so they could amass uh, hundreds of thousands of, of acres of land in, in a pretty short period of time. As you said, her father was sort of bitten by the frontier bug and decides to move from what was a pretty comfortable life in Virginia to the West, what was then the Western frontier, Tennessee and Kentucky. You mentioned they make a trip uh, on uh, the Good Boat Adventure, uh, was the, the, the name of the boat, the adventure, uh, from December of 1779 until April of 1780. They make this harrowing trip. Can you describe some of the incidences of that trip coming west? Oh, it was just horrendous. First of all, they started in December, and what was the worst winter turned out to be the worst winter in decades. Uh, Everything up the coast froze, and that was when Washington and his troops were under, what was it, several feet of snow. And uh, since the water was low, they spent weeks going absolutely nowhere. 
using up their provisions. Uh, then when they got down around Chattanooga, there were Indians that fired on them. Uh, during one Indian attack, Donaldson had Rachel on the roof of a flatboat steering it. And another girl was doing the same thing, and she was shot. And then their uh, infectious diseases broke out. Uh, one boat was cut off from the rest of them, and uh, they were left there for the Indians to slaughter. I, I guess in a roundabout way, it came back to bite the Indians because they caught the disease. I think you mentioned 33 people die on the trip. Right. Pretty, pretty incredible. And for uh, How old is she at this point in time? She was 12 when they started. So quite an adventure for a 12-year-old girl to take part in. And not only did Donaldson have his big family with him, he also had, I think it was 24 slaves with him. It's interesting you mentioned this is 1779, 1780. The American Revolution is in full swing. What's prompting, do you think, Donaldson and these large numbers of people in western Virginia to head west when there's a revolution being fought in the east? I think it was the that strong attraction of all the free land that was across the mountain. That pulled harder than patriotism. Land was money and power. Uh, They made it to Nashville, and after a short time, uh, spending a little bit of time there, the Donaldsons decide to move to Kentucky. What's prompting them to head in that direction? I think there were a number of reasons. Uh, Donaldson knew the Indian tribe quite well from his surveying, previous surveying trip. And I think he knew there were going to be Indian attacks. There were a few forts around Nashville, or what later became Nashville. And I think he saw that coming and wanted to get his family away. They ended up in uh, what is now Mercer County, Kentucky, Harrodburg County. And it's very sketchy what remains of the history of that move. And he had he already had land surveyed off in Kentucky. So they had slaves to help build them a fort or stockade or whatever, but there's no no documentation for a number of years there about how they were living or what they were doing. It's while there that Rachel entered her teen years. Um, do we know what she looked like? Are there any contemporary descriptions of, of what she looked like uh, as, a, as a young woman? Oh, she was said to be a great beauty with flashing dark eyes, dark hair, a very gregarious personality, never met a stranger, and uh, was quite an accomplished horsewoman. It wasn't long before people took notice of her, especially men. Uh, She met Louis Robards. Uh, What do we know about Mr. Robards? Well, he was a Revolutionary War veteran. He is sort of this shady character in the beginning that you wonder about him because in his father's will, he was the oldest son in his second marriage. His father skipped over him and selected the next child and a child in his first marriage, along with his second wife, to administer his state. He did cut Lewis out of the estate. In fact, he fared quite well, but he didn't give him any responsibility. And I, I, th- I think the father knew something about him that made him do that. Hmm. And as it turns out, he's right. He came to the marriage with some wealth. Uh, I think you mentioned he owned about 10,600 acres of land uh, and shares in thousands of other acres as well. Uh, I think his state records show about 35 enslaved people as well. Um, 
Rachel and he uh, courted for a time, and they were married in March of 1785. What kind of marriage did they right. have? To be perfectly frank, Tom, I think it was for Rachel, hell on earth. He was verbally abusive. One of his sisters, Sally Robart Jewett, said that he was physically abusive to Rachel. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, and it appears so, but Rachel, four sisters between them, had 37 children. Rachel turned out to be barren. And I'm thinking that the physical abuse that she suffered from Robart could have been the cause of that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's never really been been written before. Um, but that's that's an interesting. You're right. The the abuse was well documented uh, by a number of sources. People that were close to them and people who were not. Uh, many people witnessed the certainly the verbal abuse uh, that she she was under uh, during that time. They lived in Robard's mother's boarding house uh, in Kentucky, which really sheltered a who's who of frontier leaders in K- Kentucky from Kentucky and Tennessee. Right, and. Uh... I think if Rachel even looked at another man, uh, Robards just became unhinged. And you have to remember during this period, her family had moved back to Tennessee. So Rachel was in this abusive relationship. And to her credit, her mother-in-law was her staunchest supporter, but that didn't stop the abuse. Which I think that speaks volumes. That really, her her mother in law was on her side uh, throughout all of all of this controversy. Uh, during this unhappy union, Rachel's father, John Donaldson, was killed mysteriously on a return trip uh, from back east to Nashville. Do we know what Rachel's reaction was to the loss of her father? She's away from her family, and then hears of the loss of her father. That must have been difficult. Oh, it was. I think at that point, that was probably the lowest key, lowest point in her life. And, of course, then we have the uh, uh, incident that uh, set uh, Robart off. Uh, she made the mistake of speaking with a young Virginia man named Pete Short on the porch for everyone to see of the Robart's home. Well, Short was fascinated with Rachel. He assumed more than he should have, but he thought if he went back to Virginia and converted to his holdings, which were considerable since his brother was had been Jefferson's secretary for many years in France, and he was going to come back and get Rachel and take her to Natchez, which was a Spanish uh, section of the country. Well, he made a terrible mistake by writing Rachel a letter to that effect, which uh, Robart intercepted. Now, mind you, he's accusing Rachel of all of these liaisons with his mother's borders. But he leaves, and a trip from Mercer County to Richmond, Virginia, would take several weeks each way. So he was willing to leave her alone to travel to Virginia, and Short challenges him to a duel, which he refuses to fight. He, he refused something about him. He just would not fight a duel. And uh, so Short offers him, $1,000 just to make it go away. And he took $1,000, came back to Mercer County, and notified Rachel's mother that he wanted her to take, he wanted her to take Rachel off his hands. Can you imagine what she went through? I can't. It's an incredibly sad, sad story for this young woman. Um, let's pick this back up in just a moment. Uh, let's spend a few minutes with our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. 
don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServePro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServePro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, joining me via phone is Betty Bulls Ellison, the author of the book Rachel Donaldson Jackson, The First Lady Who Never Was. Miss Ellison, we were discussing Rachel's pretty horrific first marriage uh, to uh, Mr. Robards. Uh, he's just extorted someone for $1,000. He is sending Rachel home to her mother. Um, after a time, Robards makes his intentions known that he wants to reconcile. However, Rachel's back in Nashville area with her family at this point, and Robards in- intends to reconcile. Why do, why do you think that is? After after the treatment uh, that he had shown her uh, through that time, what, what's his interest in reconciling, do you suppose? Money and land, because he was due her part of her father's estate. Right. As a, after her father died, she stood to inherit a fortune in land and property. So you think Robards is seeing, seeing the financial benefits of having her back? Oh, without a doubt. He didn't tell her anything about reconciliation as uh, the oncoming event proved. He was interested in money and said so in a letter to uh, one of Rachel's brothers-in-law. I think the more interesting question is why would Rachel go decide to to reconcile herself? She agrees with the stipulation that he moved to Nashville and move in with her mother in their boarding house there. Uh, why do you think she accepts? I think, I think that was she did that to placate her mother. Hmm. And, of course, the reconciliation didn't last very long because it was at that time she met Andrew Jackson, who was a young lawyer. Uh, and was boarding with Mrs. Donaldson along with his partner, John Oakton. So this is where Andrew and Rachel first meet. So Rachel is still married uh, to Mr. Robards, uh, but Jackson is uh, a boarder in Rachel Jackson's mother's boarding house. Uh, What do we know about Jackson at this point? What is he doing with his life? Uh, He is establishing himself in Nashville uh, as an attorney, but he also has these gaming habits betting on cockfighting, horses, what have you. And he confronts Robart about his treatment of Rachel. And that's when everything blows up and Robart comes back to Kentucky. So Rachel is left, for all intents and purposes, uh, in terms of marriage, alone again. Robards is out of the picture. And Rachel decides to escape him by heading to Natchez, Mississippi, not long after followed by Andrew Jackson. Uh, well, uh, Jackson accompanies her to uh, Natchez on a flatboat belonging to Robert Sark and his family. But by, he doesn't tarry very long on that trip until he returns. I think he had returned to Nashville in time record following April. So give us the timeline of events that eventually begs the question, were Andrew and Rachel married before her previous marriage to Robards legally ends? That becomes the big controversy that's going to follow them for the rest of their lives. Absolutely it did, and I'm of the opinion that it was a common decision between the two of them because she could not divorce Robart at that time of 17. Uh, Robart had to go through the legislature to get permission to file the divorce, which he actually did twice, once in the Peyton Short affair and then uh, the second time. But he still was hesitant, I think, about the Donaldson estate. And the strange thing about that is 
here was Donaldson who had all this land. There was a settlement of his personal estate, but there is no record of a settlement ever having been made of his real estate. That's that's a was one thing that I could never figure out exactly what happened, but I suspect it was some creative lawyering. <laughs> so Robards does eventually file for divorce uh, in this timeline. He filed for divorce in in Mercer County, Kentucky, and the suit is printed in the Kentucky Gazette this week, uh, calling for Rachel to answer the subpoena. Etc., etc., provide discovery, none of which was done. The Jacksons and Overtons and Donaldsons simply pretended it didn't exist and that Rachel didn't know about it. Well, I'm here to tell you that Rachel certainly knew about it. Uh, there were, I suspect, there were few, if any, secrets between Rachel and Jack. And it would have been a conscious decision on both their parts to ignore it and hope it would go away. Well, it did go away, and it came back to bite them decades later. It's while they're in Natchez that people started seeing Jackson and Rachel together. They travel back to Tennessee together. There are some witnesses, some of which are shady, that say they slept under the same blanket together on this trip back. And, and it becomes clear not long after they return that they are have been married. She's calling herself Mrs. Andrew Jackson at this point. The thinking is that they believe, Rachel believes, that the divorce had been finalized at that point in time, uh, but there were many people out there that questioned that fact, that in, that she was actually acting the bigamist or the adulteress uh, at this point in time. And that's the controversy that's really going to follow them. What I found interesting in your book is you sort of see Rachel ignoring the summons to come for the divorce as a means of forcing her husband, uh, forcing Robards to file for the divorce. She's sort of forcing his hand. So she that's a way for a woman in the uh, 18th century, perhaps, to get out of a, a, a horrible a horrible marriage. Is that, is that How a fair summation? How else could she have gotten out of it, Tom? Right. Of course she could have killed him. <laughs> and I'm sure Jackson would have been happy to do it. But aside from that, this was her only recourse. So the Jacksons begin their life together. Um, what can you tell us about, can you sum up Rachel and Andrew's relationship? Uh, without a doubt, they loved each other very much. And I, I think maybe uh, Mead uh, Minigrod, the uh, writer that did the Saturday Evening Post article on Rachel that caused so much consternation in Nashville in the 1920s, uh, he wrote, she adored him. She rebuked him for his sins. She strove with him for his unbelieving soul. She lamented his godless tongue and the fatal celerity of his trigger finger, but she adored him. Yeah, I think that that becomes clear in, in the various letters that remain. Uh, and as you mentioned early early on, many of her letters were destroyed in a fire at the Hermitage in the 1830s. But the, the letters that remained, there's a true devotion and love between the two of them. Um, the, the letters to each other are really quite, quite amazing. Um, Jackson, of course, his star is on the rise as a military figure and as a political figure. Jackson is perhaps the biggest fish in the Tennessee pond on the frontier. Um, Business frequently took him away from their home. What was Rachel's role in the time that Jackson, the long periods of time that Jackson was gone? What did she do? Well, she managed the estate, the plantation. Uh, they had a cop gin that gin their cotton and that of uh, a number of neighbors. And one, one thing that I thought was quite interesting, she was an early advocate 
I think, a cottage industry. Hmm. And I discovered through some letters that she wove their own wall or had it done for their garment there on the plantation. Huh. Uh, in 1920, uh, uh, I think it was uh, in the 1828 campaign, uh, she wove and sewed the suit for a gentleman who had a newspaper sporting Jackson in Cincinnati. Interesting. Now, what other, aside from, you know, the vegetables, the food, the meat, etc., that she did in that period, I, d- I don't know, but I-, I was quite impressed with that. So she sort of takes on the role as business manager uh, for the for the plantation. Um, how many enslaved people were on that property? Do we have a sense of that at any given time? It was, I think it was fluid, because... Uh, he brought some back from, uh, I think it was the First Seminole War, but told her in a letter that he may, might sell some of them before he returned to Nashville. So, and, and also uh, tacked her with another chore to build a house for them. Most of them were women, so that they would have a place to stay when they got to the hermitage. Hmm. So she had a quite a lot of responsibility just at the home place while he's off on his military exploits and political and business exploits elsewhere. The Jacksons, as you mentioned, were childless. How did they react to that, though? It seems like they were always surrounded by young people. Uh, they reacted by supposedly adopting a twin. Uh, one of her brothers and his wife had twins. And, but there's no record of the adoption. And, you know, the selection is rather shrouded because an infant had to have nourishment, and she would have had to have found a wet nurse somewhere to provide the child with milk. And uh, as I say, there was no rec- ever a record of adoption, but they renamed him uh, Andrew Jackson Jr., spoiled him rotten, and let him, I mean, he was 15, and Jackson was still worried about his reading, and turns out that he frittered away his entire fortune. It's a common tale among presidential children, I'm afraid. Uh, we, we've seen that a lot throughout history. I was fascinated by the letters of Jackson and how he speaks about and through Rachel to his various wards, nephews and nieces, and uh, adopted children as well. We think of Jackson as the fighter, uh, as the sort of the blustery politician, uh, but there's a real warmth and tenderness about the way that he speaks, not just to Rachel, but about the children as well. There, there was a very deep, tender side to Andrew Jackson, which I found fascinating in your book. Well, there was. And I suspect that came from the hard gravel childhood that he endured. I'm interested. Go ahead. He was, as uh, one source said, there was always somebody dying and leaving Jackson as guardian of their children. And that, that was true. And he spent a lot of his own money in educating some of those wards who were not related to either he or uh, Rachel. Yes, it seems like there was a nonstop train of, of children being being left to them <laughs> over time. It's it's interesting, uh, despite the fact that they had no children, they're constantly surrounded by, by young people really throughout their, their entire lives. Um, One thing that I found really interesting interesting that I don't I don't know that other biographers have gone into and that was the Jackson horse racing. Hmm. Uh, he was a dyed in wool advocate of thoroughbred racing and lost an awfully lot of money trying to defeat one horse, a filly named Maria. And he was he was bleeding money. He, even during the Battle of New Orleans he was still trying to find horse the cathedral. 
And uh, here was Rachel working her fingers to the bone, trying to keep them afloat and having to work even harder to cover those losses. And I could find no place where she complained about it. Which is fascinating and begs the question, what were her, what was her religious, what were her religious beliefs? Did gambling and, uh, and some and of those. Her sisters were caught up in the Great Awakening, swept the frontier in the early 1800s. And I think that gave her a base of drink, Tom, because you no longer, some of her letters to Jackson complained a lot. They were whiny and so forth. And, uh, but after that, she asserted herself uh, much more forcefully than before. In one of her letters to Jackson, she writes, Do not, my beloved husband, let love of country, fame, and honor make you forget you have me. Right. Did, did she ever admonish him from a religious standpoint about things like uh, gambling and horse racing? Did her religious beliefs ever prompt her to chastise him, for lack of a better word, uh, for those? I don't know. I know she admonished him for not joining church, and consequently he gave the land and helped build the church at the Hermitage and explained to her that he would join the church after his political career was over, which I think he did. One of the things that I wanted to talk about with Rachel was how how did society, as, as Jackson becomes a national hero, a national figure, how does society initially treat Rachel? She is known to enjoy pipe smoking and cigar smoking and, and those kinds of things. That's that frontier background, I suppose. But when she leaves the Hermitage on the rare occasions that she did, and she goes to a cosmopolitan city like New Orleans and then on to Washington, D.C., as her husband joins the Senate and starts his run for the presidency, how do how do how does society in those larger cities treat her? The people that knew her really knew her, loved her. Uh, for instance, take the uh, Creole society ladies in New Orleans. They and again, Minigrode uh, talks about this. They took her under their wing. They bought her clothes. They bought her jewelry. They gave her a crash course in etiquette. They surrounded her in public and guided her through what could be social missteps. And Minigrode said, well, they would have done some of this for any woman, but they did it for Rachel because they loved her. She had that kind of a personality and that kind of effect on a lot of people. And then again, on the other side, there were people that made fun of her. Jackson continues with his political career. He has presidential aspirations. It becomes pretty clear in his letters that he is ambitious and sort of heading in that direction. He runs for president in 1824 and loses to John Quincy Adams uh, when the third highest vote getter, Henry Clay of Kentucky, threw his support to Adams, thereby giving Adams the presidency. Uh, Adams immediately makes Clay his secretary of state, which at that point in time was a real stepping stone to the presidency. Jackson called it, of course, a corrupt bargain and was devastated. It appears, however, that Rachel had a very different view. Did she oh, want her she husband to run married. for president? She was going home to the Hermitage with him. He promised in letters over and over again that he looked forward to the days when his public life would be behind him and they would be together at the Hermitage, a, a sort of a, a false promise, if you will, for years. Uh, so when she, he loses that election in 1824, she sees an opportunity that he's finally going to be able to, to come home. It's not the case. The election of 1828, four years later, would come about. The election of 1828 was one of the worst in terms of the amount of mudslinging dealt by both political parties. The Whig Party, the opposing political party, 
targeted Rachel. Uh, the circumstances of their marriage became one of the chief political topics. That controversial divorce from Robards and marriage to Jackson. Can you speak to the politics of this period? Was the sanctity of a candidate's wife fair game? It had not been fair game up to that point. And that was one of the things that attracted me to Rachel, <clears throat> that she was called every name you could imagine, every derogatory word you could imagine in public rant. And she was fitted. I mean, she was a, became sort of a battering ram. The Adam Clay people through Charles Hammond's Cincinnati Gazette published this long pamphlet, uh, repetitively, you know, calling both she and Jackson everything they could think of. And, uh, they overdid it. And she was not happy that he was elected president. Jackson was static. And, but she, rather than stay at the Hermitage, she was going to accompany him to Washington, and she suffered a fatal heart attack December 22nd, 1828. Just four and months. Died just four months prior to, died. right. Just four months prior to his, his election. Um, there's been a little bit of question as to whether she knew about Hammond's article, uh, that was reprinted all over the country calling her a Jezebel and an adulteress. Uh, e- even some modern historians have, have printed that perhaps she was shielded to a certain degree, but you, you don't think so. You think she certainly knew what was being written about her during the election. They didn't have secrets from each other, I don't think, Tom. Rachel was the archivist of his political documents, his legal documents. Uh, they were stored in her trunk, or in one case, in a red pocketbook. Uh, he operated his campaign out of the Hermitage. How could she not know what was going on? I mean, I think to think that she was shielded does her a disservice. You would have to assume she never read any of the newspapers that came in. Well, of course she did. I, I, I don't subscribe. Um, the purpose of all of that, of course, uh, of those slings and arrows by the Whigs, of course, was to draw Jackson out, hopefully making him lose his temper and thereby misstep in, in politics. But it didn't work. Jackson, despite his famous temper, managed to control himself. All of that negativity sort of blew up in the Whigs' face, and Jackson was elected president. As you said, Rachel mortified, Jackson himself ecstatic, um, and then... The, the terrible happens. Uh, in a letter dated December 18th, 1828, Jackson writes a poignant and ominous letter to his friend Francis Preston, writing, Whilst writing, Mrs. Jackson from good health has been taken suddenly ill with excruciating pain in the left shoulder, arm, and breast. What may be the result of this violent attack, God only knows. I hope for her recovery and in haste close this letter. So y- you said it's pretty clear based on his description that those are symptoms of a heart attack. Uh, she didn't die instantly, though. She lingered for some time. Uh, uh, can you tell us about her last last days? I didn't hear you, Tom. Can, can you tell us about her last days after the, think, after the heart attack happened? I think they were spent in excruciating pain, but she carried on her household business and was uh, consulting with uh, Hannah, who managed the household events at the Hermitage, uh, when she collapsed and fell on her arm. And Jackson refused to believe she was dead until, and it's so sad, until her body grew cold and stiff. He was devastated, of course, and never forgave Henry Clay and the Whig Party. He placed the blame solidly with his political opponents for her death. She was buried in the side yard of the Hermitage, which can still be visited today as a historic site just outside of Nashville. Miss Ellison, what is Rachel Jackson's legacy? What does she mean to us today? Rachel Jackson's legacy, even 
in the 21st century sends a message to women that says, regardless of the circumstances, follow your heart. Rachel did. She paid a tremendous high for it, but she had the strength and the wherewithal to do it. I'm, I'm not sure there are many 21st century women who would go through what she went through and succeed. I've often wondered about what would a Rachel Jackson's White House have been like. Well, of course, it's called the President's House then. And I think it would have been a warm, gracious place where she knew everybody at her table. She talked personally to everybody seated, whether it was at the lower end of the table or the upper end of the table. I think there's a lot to be learned from the perseverance of Rachel Jackson. She's an interesting historical figure, certainly merits uh, having her own biographies written. She's more than the president's wife. Her book is called Rachel Jackson, The First Lady Who Never Was. Betty Bowles Ellison, thank you for joining us on History's Hook. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I've enjoyed it. I leave you with a quote from a letter written by Rachel Jackson to her husband, Andrew. Do not, my beloved husband, let love of country, fame, and honor make you forget you have me. Without you, I would think them all empty shadows. You will say this is not the language of a patriot, but it is the language of a faithful wife, one I know you esteem and love sincerely. But how many pangs, how many heart-rendering sighs your absence has cost me. My time passes heavily, not in good health, but I hope to see you once more on this globe. And after this frail life ends, be with you in happier climes, where I shall experience no more painful separation, and then I'll be at rest. I feel a forecast of the joy that is to the virtuous souls. Gracious God, help me pray for your happiness. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.